So we're going to read together our scripture passage, which is from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out for Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people respond, all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hey. Um. What we just read is the beginning of a section in which God lays down the law. He gives His law to His people. And it's a long section. It goes from Exodus 19 to Exodus 24. And there's a lot of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, build this, this way, etc., etc. It goes on and on and on. And immediately um, we run into a problem as modern people. Modern people read stuff like that. And I'm not saying you do, but I'm just saying sort of modern people generally. They read stuff like that and they say, this is precisely what religion is all about. It's about laws. It's about rules. It's about controlling behavior. And that's what's wrong with religion. Now, we got some guests here, so you haven't been with us uh, as we've been traveling through these uh, stories together, um, but we just read uh, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea last week, and what we saw there was the very opposite of this charge, that religion is all about rules and law. What we saw there was that at the heart of Christianity is not law, it's grace. God rescued His people who were powerless to do anything to rescue themselves, all they were called to do was just stand back and watch God do this incredible work of power in their lives. And therefore, grace, not law, is at the heart of God's relationship to His people. And yet, when you read the Bible, you cannot help but realize and notice that there's a a lot of rules in the Bible. There is a lot of law in the Bible. There is a lot of descriptions about what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and how you're supposed to live and how you're not supposed to live. And so the question becomes, how do grace and law, how do they relate to one another? It's a huge issue. There is an order to grace, There is an order to God's relationship with us that starts with grace, it it continues to law, and then it finishes in blessing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at that order a little bit today from these verses to try to understand. We're going to see the story of grace, we're going to see the pattern of grace, and if there's time, we'll talk about the location of grace as well. So, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, this morning. Let's have a look together. 
when you go back to the very beginning of the story of the Exodus, God, through Moses, goes to the people of Israel and he says, listen, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. I am going to take you out of this terrible situation that you're in in Egypt, and I am going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, to Canaan. It's going to be full of resources, very rich, and you are going to live off the fat of that land, and you're going to be very, very happy. All you need to do is put your trust in me. And so God takes them out. But what happens by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19 is we see that the people have arrived at this mountain called Sinai. And what you may not know is, is that this mountain Sinai is actually farther away from Canaan, the promised land, than Egypt was. God didn't take them the, the direct route through the land of the Philistines. He took them on this wandering, circuitous, out-of-the-way route that ended up in the desert. So, what does that mean? That means they're in a worse place than they plan to go, and they're farther away from the place that they plan to go. What is up with that? This is where God decides to meet them. And there's a lesson right off the bat that we ought to listen to, friends, and it's this. Often, this is how God works in our lives. This is the story of our lives. Um... I've had the opportunity on occasion to um, disciple a person to faith. So I didn't, I didn't make them a Christian, but through my relationship with them and sharing the gospel with them, they, they came to understand that they were in need of a Savior. They put their trust in Jesus and they, they, uh, they accepted Him as their Savior and their, and their Lord. And what has often happened to some of those people is, is that as soon as they do that, they put their trust in Jesus, they, they hope in Him, and they put their faith in Him, that their life, it goes south afterwards. All of a sudden, all these hardships and these troubles and these obstacles start uh, uh, popping up in their lives, and they don't know where they're coming from. And then weeks later, or even months later, they, they say to themselves, what in the world has happened? I put my trust in God, I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and my life didn't get better. It got worse. I'm going the wrong direction here, not the right direction. God seems to be taking me further away from His promises as opposed to closer to His promises. What on earth is going on here? And Alec Mateer, who is an Old Testament scholar, wrote a phenomenal book on uh, the book of Exodus. He says, that is the pattern of the life of faith very often. And it's on display for us in this story. See, God did this very thing with the people of Israel because we need, he says, we need to be taught the principles of grace through experience because nobody, nobody really ever understands them simply by being told. John Newton, he wrote... Amazing Grace, you remember that, that great hymn? He said, no one ever learned they were a sinner by being told. No one ever learned they were a sinner by being told. They needed to be shown. Here's God rescuing the people of Israel from Egypt. Woohoo! we're free. We're free from the oppressor, Pharaoh. But God had a bigger agenda in mind. The real enemy was not out there. It wasn't the Egyptians and Pharaoh that was the, the great oppressor. The real oppressor, the great problems that they needed to deal with was the sin in their own hearts. And this is an important thing for us to realize, friends. Our greatest problem, the greatest enemy that any one of us will face is not systemic oppression from the outside. It's not a rigged economy. It is not bad politicians who make horrible decisions for us. It's not a poor educational system. It's not a biased media. 
Those problems exist, those problems are out there, but they are not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is sin. It's an internal problem. God's biggest concern with the Israelites and his biggest concern in your life is not the problems of your circumstances and the things that are happening to you out there. They're the things that are going on inside of you. And I don't just get this from the fact that people, the people of Israel end up in Mount Sinai. I get this from the fact that, that God tells them this. A little further in Deuteronomy, which is a book that Moses writes at the end of their trip through the wilderness. Okay, you know the Israelites, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. They, wilderness, they finally get to the promised land. They're about to go in to the land of Canaan after all these years. And then God says this to them. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 8, beginning at verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know this, then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Took 20, took 40 years for God to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt to Sinai, because over that time, he was... He was teaching them that they had an internal slavery that needed, they needed to be freed from. Now, here's the point for you and me in this moment right now. Any one of us in this room this morning, or if you're watching on the live stream, any single one of us could be more threatened by what's going on inside of us than we are by the circumstances we're facing in our lives. Let me say it again. Any one of us could be more threatened by what's going on inside of us right now than the circumstances we are facing in our lives. Let that sink in. You may have stuff that you're not dealing with, that you're not wrestling with, that you're not addressing And you feel like your life is going sideways. And God seems to have taken you on a detour right now. And it's because God is determined to apply his grace to you. The way to the promised land, that's what this story pictures for us in a very vivid way. The way to the promised land is often through the desert. Are you ready for that? Do you realize that that no amount of external liberation means beans all if you are still enslaved internally? It's It's no liberation at all. All right, that's the first one, the story of grace. The second one is the the sequence of grace. Um, Matir, the guy I mentioned, he actually says that if you want to understand the Bible, you better understand the next few verses of Exodus 19. Because they show a, a sequence, a structure to grace that if you don't keep that structure straight in your head, it will mess you up. So let's have a look at this structure. The structure is this. It's found in verses 4 to 6. One, God saves entirely by his act of grace in your life. Two, 
people, the people respond with obedience. And three, you experience the blessings of obedience. Okay? That's the sequence. That's what the sequence is. If you don't get this, you don't get the rest of the Bible. So let's have a look. First one is God, God rescues us, saves us entirely by grace. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, we don't have to spend a long time on this one because we've kind of been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. The Israelites did nothing, nothing, nothing to save themselves from Egypt. In fact, if you read the story, they actually made, made it harder on God to free them from Egypt. But God carried them on eagle's wings. Here's your Lord of the Rings uh, uh, reference for today. It's from the movies this time. At the very end of the last movie, Sam and Frodo have accomplished throwing the ring in the, into Mount Doom, but Mount Doom starts exploding, and as they escape, there's this lava f river that is created all around them, and they get stuck on a rock, and there's nothing they can do, and they think they're about to die, but then the eagles come. Good eagle call, eh? That's for you kids. And... They pluck Sam and Frodo from the rocks and take them back out of Mordor. And I love the scene where Frodo is hanging like this in the claw from the eagle. And he is like completely and utterly passive. He doesn't even really know what's happening. They did it all. And that is the picture that God gives of his salvation. You contribute nothing to your salvation. He does it entirely and completely by grace. So that's the first step in the sequence. The second step in the sequence is in verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, or sorry, my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. So God expects a response of obedience to what, excuse me, to the salvation that he works for his people. Now, you got to see the order. God does not come and say, here's my law. And they say, okay, we'll obey it. And God says, okay, I'll save you. If it was that way, they would have earned their salvation. It's, it's not that. It's God comes and saves them. He says, obey me. They say yes, and he gives them their law. Because obedience is a response in Scripture to grace. When people say religion is all about rules to control people, they're right about other religions, not about Christianity. Because many religions basically say this, I obey God, I, I do that, and therefore he accepts me. And therefore the salvation that they have is kind of conditional, right? God controls you through fear because if you don't obey, you're out of the family. God kicks you out and you are no longer saved. And so you're always ruled by fear, wondering, am I doing it the way I'm supposed to do it? Am I following God the way I'm supposed to follow him, etc.? You screw up, you're, you're out. It's very controlling. But the gospel is the opposite. The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. This is huge. Obedience is motivated not by fear in Christianity, but by love when it's understood properly. It's motivated by fear, not by love. Whoops. Did I just say that wrong? Yeah. It's motivated by love, not by fear. Because here's why. Obedience is necessary for real relationship. We talk about this all the time. What does God say in verse 4? 
I brought you, I took you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The purpose of God saving his people was to be in relationship with them. Well, you can only really have relationship when you obey because you see obedience, it's not an end in itself. It's not just a thing that you do because an arbitrary God made you. It's a means to an end. It's a means to intimacy. It's a means to being drawn closer to God in relationship. Think of it this way. When you obey, you have to, it has to be an act of the will. You don't just automatically obey. You actually have to, have to consider the wants. Like, even if you're in love with a woman, if you want to please that woman, you've got to figure out what that woman wants. And then you've got to find a way to get that woman what that woman wants. And by doing that, you have conformed yourself to her will. And you have... You have expressed your love to her. And she says to you, well, well, now I know you love me. Now I know you, you care about me because you're thinking about me and you're thinking about what I want and what I desire and you're trying to accomplish it for me. That's exactly how it works. Well, why would it work any differently with God? You go to God and you say, this, what do you want? This is what you want. Well, I'm going to decide to do that. And then when I feel tempted not to do that, when my own desires or the devil or whatever tries to come into my life to derail that, I'm going to cry out to you and ask you to enable me to do what you want. I wrote something down. Experience being champ, possession, king's personal wealth, my car. I don't even know what I'm talking about here. What am I talking about? You have to consider their wants. Oh, oh, yeah, this is what I was going to say. Now I remember. I suspect that one of the problems in the modern church, the reason the, the modern church seems so anemic, seems so powerless, Christians, frankly, in the modern Western church oftentimes seem kind of blasé about their relationship with God, and they don't really feel like they have much of a relationship with God. I, I really believe that, that part of the problem is is because we don't take obedience seriously. When you, when you take obedience seriously, you experience intimacy with God. There have been times in my life where I have wanted to do something very sinful and I've, I've, I've felt a strong urge to, to disobey God and to go in a, a way contrary to his will and I search the scriptures to, to, to be encouraged by them and then when I'm tempted, I cry out to God and I ask you, Lord, please protect me. Do not let your servant sin and he, he shows up and he does something remarkable and marvelous and he, he provides a way of escape, as Paul says in Corinthians, that enables me to stay obedient to him and he showers me with his pleasure at my obedience. I'm not getting any more favor from him. It's not like he loves me anymore because I've been obedient, but I experience that love subjectively. You know, in verse 5, when it says that you will be my treasured possession, it says in verse 5, you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. Now, this is what scholars say. They say that as a king, a king owns everything in a kingdom. So if you're in my kingdom and I'm the king of this kingdom, I own everything even though you own it. I still own it. Your cars are my car, okay? Because I'm the king. But the king also has their own treasured possession, has their own thing that is theirs from their own personal wealth. So for example, yes, you all have your own cars and they're ultimately mine, but I also have my own car. 
And my car is special to me. I've got the radio tuned to all the stations that I like. I've got the seat set to the way I like it to sit so that I can ride the way I want to ride. I've got the right air freshener because I like that smell. It's my car. It's set to me. It is my treasured possession. What God is saying in this passage is, is he is going to make you his treasured possession through your obedience. Well, not sorry. He is going to express to you that you are his treasured possession through your obedience. It's not that you are made his treasure, but you experience the being of his treasure. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay, then I can carry on. Last thing in the sequence. Verse 5 and 6 again. You experience the blessings of obedience. You will be my treasured possession, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel. Okay. There's no way around it. Um, blessing comes through obedience. I know that we are afraid sometimes of talking like that because we think, well, that sounds a little bit like works righteousness, but that's, what I'm not, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you experience God's blessings through obedience. You do. In the next chapter, he is going to describe, he's going to give the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are God's, God's moral law for how we are to live. See, God created the universe with physical laws. He created the universe with moral laws. Physical laws are described in, in ways like, you know, you have Ohm's law, you have Archimedes' law, Pascal's law, Newton's law, all these physical laws, right? And they are written into the fabric of the universe, and you can decide to disagree with those laws and go your own way. If you do that, you do it to your own peril. So you can say, I don't like the law of gravity. You can go to the spire at the top of Knox Presbyterian Church and you can jump off and say, take that law of gravity. And God is not going to write you a ticket and say, you violated my physical law, therefore here's your ticket. You know what he's going to do? He's going to let you fall and break your neck. And the same is true with his moral law. You choose not to obey God's law. You choose to walk in your own ways and live according to your own plans and, and your own designs on what is right and what is wrong. God doesn't have to write you a ticket. What will happen is, is the, the reality of his truth will impose itself on you. But if you conform yourself to his law, you experience his blessing. There's a problem, though. <laughs> It says, the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses sets this before them. He says, you've been saved by grace. Now obey God and you will experience blessing. And the people say, we'll do it. And then you read the rest of the Bible and you go, they can't do it. Only a few chapters later, the people of Israel have, have while Moses is up on the mountain, the people of Israel have, have put together a golden calf and they're worshiping an idol. They can't do it for very long. And neither can you if you're completely honest. So what is any of this, how is any of this any good and helpful to us if we can't do it anyway? And the answer is, we need the New Testament. You know, Moses is actually acting as a mediator in this story, right? In verse 8, it says, Moses went back and he summoned all the elders. Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, right? So he's up on the mountain. God says, tell him this. He goes down, tells them this. They say, we'll do this. He goes back up. He's going back and forth as a mediator. And we've been talking about how all these stories whisper Jesus's name. These stories all point to this mediator. Well, you know, the mediator that we need is the one that God provided in Jesus Christ because you and I can't fulfill the terms of the covenant. We can't obey God and fulfill it all. 
We fail time and time and time again. But what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? Listen to this. Remember how the Lord your God... Nope, I'm just reading Deuteronomy again. Here we go. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. You hear that? When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus' perfect obedience is credited to you so that when God looks at you, And he says, you want to experience the the full blessing of the covenant? Here's how you do it. Obey me perfectly. And he looks at you, who never obeys him perfectly. Instead of seeing your disobedience, he sees the perfect righteous obedience of Jesus. And he gives you the blessing. So the blessing's guaranteed. That's why this order is so important. Because it's all of grace from start to finish. How do I apply this? Go home and think about this. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your grace and forgiveness. Thank you that the order is salvation, obey, blessing. (laughs) And thank you that Jesus is the one who obeyed so we can experience the blessing. Thank you for the perfect mediator, better than Moses, your son, our savior. May we obey you because we love you, not because we fear you. In Jesus' name, amen.